This week on Daiwa, we're discussing Wright County. A teenage boy is struck in the head with a hatchet while on a fishing trip. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. Okay, before we get into fun facts, it is season two, baby. <laughs> so how do you feel? I'm feeling great. It's been a long time, but it needs to come back. <laughs> It really does. The, our routine has been a little iffy the past six months. We had a good vacation, and now it's time to get back to work. Oh, for sure. I would say it is kind of crazy that we're still doing this, but I think probably even if we were the only two listeners on the planet, we would continue doing it. I had a friend ask me that this week. She was like, did you really think you'd continue? And I was like, knowing Beth, yes, I did. I knew we would continue but we I don't think we expected like people to actually listen oh no yeah (laughs) (laughs) so very exciting we have real listeners (laughs) all right well start off season two we're in Wright County this week have you ever been or what is your relationship to Wright County um I think I've probably been to almost every single neighboring county but missed Wright somehow (laughs) have you been there I'm the same I also I like Eagle Grove sounds familiar but I don't think I've ever been Mm mm-hmm Okay, so hit me with a fun fact. All right, well, for starters, their tagline is right place, right time, right county. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so a strong start. Uh, they also have a big factory that manufactures egg cartons and drink carriers, like, you know, those things that you take your Starbucks cups to work in for your coworkers. And Love they're it. all from recycled fibers. So that's fun. And shout out to recycling. Yes. Save the earth. <laughs> So another fun fact, Yeah. Um, the superintendent of Clarion, which is in Wright County, in 1907, his name was O.H. Benson, and he was famous for creating the four-leaf clover emblem used by 4-H clubs of America. Wow. Do you know what 4-H clubs are? I do. Were you a part of them? I was not a part of them. No. <laughs> I went I to like some county fairs, though, and saw some like animals and pies and all of that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in 4-H either, but lots of family members are, and I knew a lot of people that actually went to Drake that were in 4-H club, so I thought that was fun too. Interesting. Um, For those who don't know, though, 4-H is a club that helps young to high school age students with leadership skills and prepares them to be contributing members of society. And for whatever reason, many Iowa schools and communities use farming to give kids leadership opportunities. So Iowa State is a really, the university, is a really big partner with 4-H. So a lot of 4-H members seem to have agricultural ties, and then they end up at Iowa State because Iowa State has a great agricultural program as well. Um, I wasn't ever in it, though, so maybe I'm not the best person to speak on it. <laughs> maybe we should have had a special guest that was in 4-H club. I don't know. Another bonus episode. Yes. <laughs> but I have no cute segue into this episode's murder because it's a really sad one. Um, so we are headed back to 2010. Anything exciting happened to you that year? Oh, you know it. Class of 2010. (laughs) Knew it. How many people were in your graduating class? I want to say like 47. That seemed very impressive. That's good. (laughs) What about yours? No, nothing exciting happened to me in 2010. Not a great year. That's all I got to (laughs) say. 
Okay, now we have to like talk about murder again. Anything else you want to highlight from 2010? No. That's like a nice segue into something extremely sad. I No, I don't have anything. Just, just prepare yourselves for this one. It's going to be rough. Okay, so 19-year-old Devin Rush lives in Clarion, Iowa, and he had just graduated from Clarion Goldfield High School the year before. He loved hanging out with friends, listening to music, singing, playing guitar, bowling, fishing, drawing, writing poems, and playing cards. Seriously, like Jack of all trades, Devin Rush. He was a part of the production crew for a play while he was in high school, but his ultimate favorite pastime was fishing. He sounded like a super friendly guy, uh, but his cousin said he was made fun of quite a bit in high school. According to his Facebook page, Devin had arthrogryposis, which mm-hmm. is a variety of conditions involving multiple joint contractures or stiffness. So Devin's muscles developed abnormally and he had limited mobility in his upper body. His cousin said that this was why some other high school students made fun of him. So Devin decides to go fishing with three other young guys, all 17 to 20 years old. Lucas Allen Faulkner, Tanner Douglas Jewsbury, and Anthony Austin Simpson. They're on a pond on private property just four miles northwest of Eagle Grove. Two days later, some Gold Eagle Cooperative employees were spraying for thistles, and they found Devin's body. Faulkner was apparently known for his temper, and he is white and skinny with a strong jawline and prominent eyebrows, to just give a brief description. But one of his friends said that Faulkner carried a hatchet around with him and would use it to take out his frustrations on trees. He apparently had mentioned on more than one occasion that he wanted to be the hatchet killer and go on a killing spree, and that he wanted to know what it was like to kill somebody. The friend also said that Faulkner told her he liked to shoot crows with a BB gun and watch them die. So right away, you can see where this is going. According to the Globe Gazette, Faulkner walked around the pond with Simpson and told him he wanted to kill Devin. They walked back to the camp where Devin was watching the fishing poles, and Faulkner took the hatchet and struck Devin in the back of the head and then in the neck. Faulkner (laughs) wouldn't let the other two call the police and said it was time for them to go. Faulkner saw Devin moving and tried to light him on fire. The three men then left and went home to play video games after hiding the hatchet, Devin's vehicle, and his cell phone. This is really hard. Yeah, it's a tough one. I don't even know if that's the right thing to say. This is really sad. Uh, Devin apparently could have suffered for up to 12 hours. Faulkner, Simpson, and Jewsbury were all arrested the same week Devin died, on that Thursday, May 20th of 2010. Faulkner was charged with first-degree murder, while Simpson and Jewsbury were charged with being accessories in the case after the fact because they concealed physical evidence from the crime scene. None of them had been charged with serious crimes previously. Simpson and Jewsbury pled guilty and were sentenced to two years in prison, but none of them expressed a motive for why they did it. Faulkner pled not guilty, and the trial was just brutal. It was moved to Bremer County because of pretrial publicity before it began in April of 2011. Devin's family had to witness Dr. Jonathan Thompson with the Iowa State Medical Examiner's Office explain that Devin died because of multiple sharp force injuries to his head, face, and neck. One of those, quote, chop wounds fractured Devin's skull, one broke his jaw, and one penetrated his mouth with enough force to bruise his tongue. In a police interview, Faulkner said he struggled with mental issues for years and that it felt like something dark took over when he attacked Devin. He also admitted to hitting Devin several times in this interview. He said, quote, I did it, but I didn't want to. In my head, I was there, but I wasn't. 
Also in this interview, he tried to explain what his mental state was like. Again, here's a quote from Faulkner. I'm telling you right now, I've had problems for a long time. There's not just one of me. There's like four or five, like in my head. He described his mental situation as a jigsaw puzzle. He had anger issues, no job, and was self-medicated with drugs and alcohol, like marijuana, pain pills, and antidepressants. At one point, he remembered burying a chick with a spoon and putting a shotgun in his own mouth because his anger felt out of control. He said he carried a hatchet while camping because he was concerned about wildlife and protecting himself. He also described that he tried to tell people for years about his mental illnesses. It was clear that he had not been given the sufficient help he had hoped for. However, that was about the only time the jury had a chance to pity Faulkner. The rest of the trial was just as brutal as the beginning. It lasted four days, and the state had to prove that Faulkner had formed specific intent. While you may be thinking he may not have been in control of his mental abilities, the state laid a pretty clean case. For example, Faulkner had admitted to trying to light Devon on fire, which the state argued was malice aforethought. Faulkner had said several times that he did not like Devon and that he wondered what killing a person would be like. It's really interesting some of the reporting during the trial labeled Faulkner and Devon as friends when clearly they weren't actually friends. And finally, as Devon screamed in pain, Faulkner hit him in the throat to stop him from yelling, which again is specific intent to kill. However, Faulkner's lawyers highlighted that Faulkner had said he hears voices and even calls one of them Toast. A doctor said that Toast would pop out and sit down across the table and talk to him just like he was talking to me. However, the doctor didn't believe that Faulkner had multiple personalities. Typically, multiple personalities don't know about one another and don't talk to each other. In the end, an expert testified that Faulkner could be blatantly malingering and faking symptoms to evade criminal prosecution. With that, the jury only needed about an hour to convict Faulkner of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to mandatory life in prison without parole. In 2015, Faulkner was living as an inmate at the Iowa Medical and Classification Center. He was found unresponsive in his cell, where he was taken to university hospitals, where he died of a pulmonary embolism, which is when there's a blocked artery in your lungs. He was just 25 years old. At that time, both Simpson and Jewsbury had been released from prison. Devin is survived by his parents, his brother, and many members of his extended family. He's buried in Glenwood Cemetery in Goldfield, Iowa. Arthrogroposis also goes by AMC, and there's a great organization trying to provide and encourage more understanding and mutual support among anyone affected. If you want to donate, you can at amcsupport.org forward slash donate. Donations help provide educational materials to parents or relatives and materials to doctors and therapists. All right, after this tough, tough episode, I have some questions for Taps, so let's go ahead and hear what he has to say. Sounds like a plan. Hey, Taps, thanks for joining us for the first episode of season two. I want to jump in and ask any fun updates from season one to season two. Other than um, Miss Allie becoming obsessed with the Erling Satan story. Oh, (laughs) the bonus episode. Did you listen? That's that's correct. (laughs) Uh, I know you enjoyed it. You were just mad you weren't featured. 
No, I didn't. Yeah, whatever. All right. So we've talked about Wright County a little bit. We're going to dive in with, have you been to Wright County? I have been to Wright County. Not many times, but I've been there. Any fun facts? Uh, It's cold. It's north. (laughs) There's a lot of uh, corporate ag farming goes on in Wright County. Thanks for that. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So in this story, a a random co-op guy found the body. And I'm just wondering what happens to the people that find bodies in a crime scene. And then what are like the after effects? Do they get any sort of therapy compensation for therapy? Like that seems like a traumatizing event. Um, Not routinely and not until recently. I would say recently the victim witness units in the prosecutor's offices reach out to these people more than they have in the past. But in the past, No, they were just witnesses and they were interviewed. And in some cases, the interviews might be a little bit stark because we want to know why this person found the body. How were they connected? Whatever. So I've known people that have found crime scenes or bodies that felt like they were being treated as a suspect for a bit until all the facts became known. And they're interviewed like several times throughout the investigation, I assume. Is that kind of how the process goes? Yeah, it could be. It just depends on the case. But uh, especially if the crime scene is very pertinent or very relevant to the solving of the case, they could be interviewed several times. Also, it just depends on the happenstance of how they found the body. A total stranger finding a body out in the middle of a field or something probably wouldn't be treated the same as a family member or an acquaintance that finds a body. Sounds good. Makes sense to me. In this episode, we heard a lot about people experiencing bouts of maybe a mental illness, where do you recommend they should go or who they talk to if, if somebody's experiencing this or you notice someone? It's extremely difficult because the mental health system is extremely broke. And the people that need the most in many cases are the people that can least afford the services. And obviously the hospitals and private health facilities, you know, need to make money. They can't do everything for free. And in many states, and Iowa included, many of the state mental health facilities have been closed or limited. So it's very, very difficult now. The good news is since maybe the Floyd case and and maybe even before then, police departments or law enforcement agencies have become more proactive in in having mental health responders in their police departments or the ability to contact them from their police department. So that helps. But if people are just out seeking help, I would recommend any good community mental health resource that would offer them. There's a lot of 800 numbers and a lot of uh, faith-based groups, uh, nonprofit groups that can do stuff. Got it. Any tips on how you can protect yourself against a hatchet? Like uh, maybe a knight armor suit. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know any way of doing it. Um, there's, there's really no defense. You know, there could be some, I suppose, martial art techniques or something to try to block the arm that's doing it. But in many cases, nobody, somebody doesn't even know it's coming at them when it happens. Is that a popular weapon? No, not in the modern lexicon. I mean, guns are still the preferred weapon of homicide. Mm-hmm. In this episode, the murderer died of a pulmonary embolism in jail. That's usually common in ages 70 to 79. Do you think something else could have killed him or, or do you believe that that is the case and maybe believe in karma? 
Well, I, I don't necessarily believe in karma. It depends. But and although a pulmonary embolism is rare in younger people, it can occur given the age and the facts of the case. We probably will never really know. But uh, there are many things that kill people in jails and prisons that may not necessarily kill them outside of the jail or prison. And one is just their mental attitude. In many cases, people in prisons have kind of given up on life. And so it doesn't take much to kill or for somebody to succumb to a disease that maybe they might not be as affected by outside the walls. Do you ever see autopsies coming back wrong? I haven't personally seen it. I've seen a lot of autopsies come back inconclusive where we think somebody died from a certain way or cause and the forensic pathologist cannot determine an actual cause. And if you can't prove an actual cause, it's very difficult to take a case to trial. What happens when you find someone unresponsive or dead in jail? It depends on the state. Uh, Like Nebraska, it it begins a mandatory uh, grand jury process for anybody dying in police custody. In other states, it may be a grand jury, depending on the prosecuting attorney and what the facts are. But obviously, in a jail or prison, uh, the Supreme Court has said medical help will be given to all prisoners. And so life-saving methods are begun if the jails find people or whatever. Uh, Jails, especially larger jails, have medical staffs in-house. There are AEDs. All the jailers are trained in CPR. Some of the jail standards from different states mandate that. So life-saving attempts would be begun. And then just like in the regular world, ambulance or paramedics are called to transport the person to a hospital. If the person is obviously dead, then the investigation begins right at the jail cell. Any other thoughts on this case? I mean, it points out the vulnerability of weaker members of our society. If people are affected by disability or things of that nature. They tend to be, at least anecdotally in my life, more victimized than other people. That's always very sad. You would think people would protect people of that class or group of people. But, um, you know, homicide is a very, very strange thing that has been with us since Cain and Abel, if you want to go back to that Bible verse. It's difficult to understand the motivations of people that kill other people. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for the first episode. We will see you the rest of the season. Okay. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, facts, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.